This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 174. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Neil Cataldi. He is the principal at Blueprint Capital Management. This interview is a long time in the making, and I'm so stoked that we were finally able to make this happen. If you love microcaps, heck, even if you have the smallest tacit interest in microcaps, you'll want to hear my chat with Neil. He's a true blue microcapper through and through, and I think you will enjoy every bit of what Neil has to say about his investing style, experience, talking with management, everything. Thank you again for tuning into episode 174 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Neil Cataldi. Welcome back. 
back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And my next guest, this is, so I started this podcast back in 2015. And I think I have email trails of inviting him to be one of the first guests on here. We did an interview with him. The last one was six years ago. And so this has actually been a long time in the making. I'm so excited to have him here. We got Neil Cataldi, the principal at Blueprint Capital Management, joining me right now. Neil, you're here. We made it. I'm here, yes. The last time I was seen on on video uh, was an interview with your father at an LG Micro conference probably seven or eight years ago. That was a good. That was a great interview, by the way. I actually rewatched it just before we uh, just before we got going uh, today. Yeah. So it it's it's, f- it's fitting that my uh, my my you know coming out party to podcasts uh, <laughs> video podcasts would be with you. So oh, thanks. It was it was only fitting, man. And and look, I'm I'm just so excited that you decided to join us today. I mean, there's so many different things that we can go. This is gonna be a true blue microcap classic. This is, we're gonna pretend like this is episode one. I'm gonna pretend like I'm I'm very nervous. And I'm, my pits are sweaty <laughs> and really, yeah. and really just, you know, I, I, but anyway, but uh, you know, for those who, who aren't familiar with you, like, like we are and, and with blueprint capital management, you know, let, let's start with your background. You know, where, where did your passion for investing start? Sure. Um, well, I, I'm a father. I've got two 12 year old uh, boys. And, um, and I say that because normally when I answer a question like that, I'll start off like a, a story about college. But actually, as a father now, I think back to I, I, I kind of relate to like my childhood more. Um, and it, it's interesting. I think when I was probably 11 or 12, um, I, I opened my first bank account and my grandfather made a deal with me that whatever I saved in that account for like that calendar year, he would he would match and give me at the end of the year. So I was like, 12 years old, 13 years old, I started cutting lawns and doing whatever I could. And, and I think it was like $1,000 at the end of the year. Um, and that was my first kind of entry into having money and understanding, you know, w- what a bank account felt like. Um, when, I, when I went to college, um, I was fortunate enough to uh, have a full academic scholarship um, uh, to a school called Towson University in Maryland. And um, because of that, um, my parents let me uh, get my hands on the the money that they had saved for my college education. Um, that was 1997, so it was the beginning of the internet bubble. Um, you know, I, I feel like I spent more time in college watching CNBC and learning about the market than I did anything else. Um, and I made a lot of money in three years and I lost it all my senior year when the market crashed in, in 2000. So, wow. um, so yeah, this story, this story is like, I don't know how much I learned in college, like in class, but I felt like when I came out of college, I had already learned how to, I already learned the pain of losing, you know, and maybe one of the things we'll touch on today is like, I, th- I think there's a lot to learn in failure, you know, and, and so failing early in my career um, gave me a foundation to build off of where I was always sort of in touch with like risk and, and what risk meant. So what, what, what were you looking at at that time, you know, on that three year, just insane run that you went on? Um, I mean, it was, I didn't know what I was doing, but, but luckily I, 
the there were a few advisors that if there was an initial advisor who had worked with my family and he was great and and really was a bit of a mentor um and then i had interned with some other advisors they were a little more more uh in touch weren't afraid of risk i should say and i mean i it was you know flipping ipos that were going 10 to 100 and all these crazy tech internet related things it, it was extremely reckless but you know they're in there and were the lessons at the time so um, well, I, I mean, at the time, were you looking at, okay, these investments, I'm, I want to keep for the long term, because as you said, you lost your shirt in your senior year. So, like, were you trading in and out of some of these names? Or, or were they potentially long term holdings that, all right, senior year hit, everything went to crap, and uh, here we go? Yeah, it's funny, when you look back, I mean, now I feel like, obviously, I've spent um, almost, you know, 20 years doing this, like, I, I really know how to analyze a company, I really know how to, um, figure out what I think might happen in the future and then make an investment decision based off of whatever that, you know, hypothesis is. I, at that time when I was 20, I, I honestly, it, it was a completely different um, framework. I mean, it was, it was leaning on other people's knowledge that you trusted and really just kind of, you know, setting yourself up for failure. I mean, I was investing in, in, in interesting technology stories, but I truthfully wasn't smart enough to understand the value of like reading all the filings and reading transcripts and doing the work that I do now. Um, it, it was really just a, 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 an incredible learning experience. Um, you know, and maybe that speaks to how easy it can be at times, right? That people that don't have any idea what they're doing can come in, you know, make three, four, five times their money. Um, and, and, you know, and even like capture it and get out before, you know, a market collapses, but, um, but yeah, it was a great experience. Um, when I graduated college, uh, my first job was, uh, trading options on the stock exchange in Philadelphia. I worked for, um, uh, a smaller company, um, that was then acquired by Goldman, um, a year later. So I had this interesting foundation there where I was able to kind of learn how people traded without all of the systems that a Goldman would have in place. And then when Goldman came in, um, got to learn what it was like their way. Um, and I did that for a few years before I started working at Susquehanna, um, which is one of the largest private trading firms in, in, the, in the country. Um, and when I was at Susquehanna, I obviously was off the floor, um, but I worked on a desk that was called market intelligence and I covered a sector. And our basic job was to know everything about the companies in our space. Um, but at any point in time, like a trader or somebody on a different uh, desk at, at Susquehanna might call us and say, why is this stock moving or why is volatility moving in a certain period? Um, is something happening with a peer company? you know, did an earnings date maybe shift from one month to another in terms of options expert. So we, what I learned over like a five-year period there was the value of information and, and how, you know, something very lit, seemingly little and insignificant on the surface might actually like be worth a lot more if you knew how to apply it to, to whatever story would be. Um, and that was an incredible learning experience as well um to to just kind of understand the value of, of of that information um i had always at that point in time i was playing around a lot with smaller cap ideas myself and 
um, I'd say that was sort of the, the seed that, that kind of started Blueprint. Um, after Susquehanna, I went to work for a family office um, and, and have helped them out and been a part of their um, family office for the past 13 years. Um, but I launched Blueprint um, over nine years ago today. Um, and, you know, it's been a great experience. I mean, the focus on Blueprint is, is strictly microcap. It's pure microcap. Um, and, um, you know, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more about what oh, I'm doing. Oh, yeah. we got, I got a couple rabbit holes we're about to go down. So yeah. okay, go ahead. Before, <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Before we, <laughs> before we get yeah. back to Blueprint. Yeah. So, so you, you glossed over this. This is your, this is your entire focus and you glossed over this part. Yeah. But yeah. How, so like you said, while you're at Susquehanna, that's when you started playing around with small microcat. I mean, why, you know, what, what inspired you then to really start looking at, at, at this asset class? Yeah, I think I was spending all of my I think I was spending all my time focusing on these large cap names at work and seeing how they moved and seeing what maybe made them move a certain way and and it didn't take long for me to realize that if you move down in size that those moves could be magnitudes greater um and that if you could wrap your hands around the information and wrap your hands around, you know, certain opportunities and how they might play out that you could make even more money. Right. Um, so it was just the opportunity set that appealed to me. It wasn't until, it wasn't until I got into micro caps that I understood, um, the other sort of, you know, um, nuances at play, like, like institutions moving out of the space because they're just the economics aren't there. Um, and, and once I got into it, I, then learn more about how this sort of information arbitrage really does exist and exists in a big way. Gotcha. All right. So then, all right. So that, that gives us a good, a little bit of a framework there. So, okay. So yeah. cut to blueprint, you know, you've, you, you said you founded it, what was it? So nine years ago. 2012. Right? Yeah. 2012 started. Yeah. Right. And, and what was your, what was your philosophy with starting, as you said, focus on small micro caps, you know, why, why have a create this? What, what was the structure? Was family office fund? Like what, what was the um, no. So, so separately managed accounts, yep. um, fully transparent. Uh, I, I launched it through interactive brokers. Um, I launched it with a partner at the time and, um, and, and really, you know, so part of it was born out of the success I was having. Part of it was born out of the success that a very good friend of mine was having in our desire to work together. Um, and then there was a part of it too that um, like people were coming to us all the time. And, you know, at no, I feel like people that aren't in our industry always want to talk to people in it and say, well, what should I invest in or what should I do? And, and it just was complicated to want to give people ideas or help people out. And we thought, why not just create a vehicle and make it clean? If people want to invest, they can. Um, you know, the, the strategy was pretty simple in the beginning. It was look where other people are not looking, microcaps, um, meet with as many management teams as possible, learn as many stories as we can that we felt were unknown. Um, it's always had a growth slant. I feel like I do some value investing, but it's more of a tactical like six to 12 month trade than, you know, what the focus is on the growth side, which is long-term, you know, hopefully three, five years, if, if it's really playing out the right way. Um, you know, I think I've always had a bit of a tech focus as well, but, but I'm agnostic to, to industry. Um, and, 
yeah, in the beginning, it was like, it was all that and try to identify these inflection points that um, we thought would act as catalysts for re-rating. Gotcha. And, and I have to, and I have to ask, because I mean, look, you've been following the space as, as long as I have. I mean, I started my career in 2011. Um, well, actively following, like, I mean, mm -hmm. I grew up in a family business that, you know, my, my dad has all this experience. So I knew about microcaps and everything, but actively following. But you mentioned that, you know, your philosophy is always look where others aren't. I mean, especially with microcats, have you found that that's gotten more and more difficult over the years, especially with just so, I mean, hey, how many podcasts are now, are there now talking right. about, you know, microcaps and blogs and everything like that, you know, so have you found, have you found it's gotten easier or more difficult? Yeah, I think, I think that's a really interesting thought because access to information has changed over the past 10 years. Um, I think, you know, with like social networks, um, especially Twitter, I mean, the, 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 the financial Twitter universe is, um, I think, incredibly valuable at times. And I think it also can be problematic at times. Um, but, but in a way, it's interesting because you can even then go look to see who knows a name. So say, say there's a name that I've I've, that's become a position um, and it's never talked about on Twitter. Like, you know, there's no, there's, there's just, there aren't tweets and nobody knows it. Like in a sense, that's kind of an interesting nuance, right? That, 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 that world hasn't found it. Right. And, and if they haven't found it, you know, there's probably a lot of other people that haven't found it too, because so many people, like you said, like to share their thoughts on there. Um, so I don't, I, you know, I think I've also learned too, that I don't need to be first. Um, I wanted to be first, you know, eight, 10 years ago. And now I actually don't really want to be first because, um, I think if I'm first, the story's probably too early in a way. Um, I almost want to like pay a little more to have a little less risk in a way. Um, you know, whereas in the beginning, I, I felt like, um, we had a lot of success in the first year or two. And then there was a period in the middle where there wasn't a lot of success, frankly. Um, and if I look back at that period, the the vintage of stock, that company that I owned at that time has done like incredibly well. It's actually a, like a running joke with friends what some of those companies have done because I didn't participate. Um, but they were stories. Um, you know, it was a lot of investing around what I would call like a story stock as opposed to a, a company that was really executing. Um, and with the story stocks, I feel like the timeline always gets drawn out. It's, it's much harder to predict when certain things are going to happen. Um, you know, and then there's the pitfall of like capital raises, which, which is always right around the corner. And, and probably what I would say is one of the biggest risks that I like to avoid. Um, so yeah, a long way of kind of getting around it, but I'd I'd kind of rather not be the first now, um, and and I'm happy to to kind of watch a little bit longer until it's more established. You know, that's a good segue into some of your your strategy when you identify a potential new investment. You know, what are what are some of the things that you then look for when you know you you before you reach out or before you take that next step? You know, what what are some of those things? Yeah, so I think the first thing that I do is read all the filings. Um, I start with the 10K and, you know, maybe this is pretty basic. I, I don't know, but the, the 10K to me is the 
perfect starting point where you can get the full story, you can get it how they sort of want to articulate it, and you can get hopefully a lot of detail around um, you know, different segments of the company and products. And, and there's always a lot of, um, like Easter eggs hidden in, in 10 Ks, you know, and, and I feel like a lot of times management teams are less willing to put something in a press release, but, you know, they need to put it in the filing. So it's buried in there. Um, so I start there. Well, like, hold on, before we get to the next part, like what, you know, what, what, you know, I know Maj is Maj Maj Swaydan, you know, you know, he's yeah. big on info yeah. arb stuff. So this is gonna be like a Maj question. Like what are what are some I mean, of the Easter eggs? That you, that yeah, you so it's a good question. Yeah. So um the first one that comes to mind. I mean, a company I'm invested in right now, obviously this is 10K season, right? So they just put out a 10K and there was an attachment to the 10K that lists subsidiaries, and there was a new subsidiary listed that um that was called something that would point to uh, a partnership or a collaboration with another company, right? That hadn't been announced and really wasn't anywhere. And so, you know, I don't even actually know exactly what that is today because I mean, they're not talking about it, but, you know, something as, as small as that can point you in a direction to something that, you know, may come down the line. And, and I think that's interesting. You know, I'm, I don't think a lot of people are reading the attachments on 10 Ks, um, you know, but, but that's where, I mean, the deeper you can dive, um, the, the more little things like that you can find. And, and, you know, maybe we'll talk about like how alpha is generated later in the podcast, but I think one of the ways that I can generate alpha is just by digging deeper and, and looking harder and analyzing, um, not more than everybody, but more than some people. No, let's go. Let's go there. So, I mean, what are some of the ways in which you generate alpha from finding these little things that maybe some people don't they overlook or or just don't look because they don't read the ten Ks or some of the yeah. things? Well, so I would say I was actually having this conversation with somebody not long ago. Like, how is alpha created? Um, and I think there's I think a good way that I've sort of considered is that there's four different pieces to it. So there's the analytical advantage that um, you can simply analyze a company and predict whatever the future is better than other people, right? Um, and I think that's what analysts try and do, right? That's what that's what these analyst notes are. I mean, everybody's trying to model companies and figure out what it is and assign a valuation to it. Um, there's there's the second piece is is information advantage. So, you know, it's tough in public securities, right? Because everything's in the public domain. If you're a specialist, you should, in theory, be in a better position to find info and know the value of that info than a non-specialist. While I think I'm a generalist in terms of industry knowledge, I do actually look at myself as a specialist, like in this corner of the markets, um, because I think I know where to look and I think I know how to... um, you know, there's sort of an art to an inter- art to interviewing a management team um, that I think you know only comes with doing it over time and doing it like five, six, seven hundred times. Um, so yeah, so analytical advantage, information advantage. Um, I think there's an execution advantage, which would be like the trading side of it. Um, maybe if you're doing private deals, like how you negotiate price and warrants on deals. Frankly. That's, I don't 
I don't think that's where I'm adding that adding the most value. I don't think that like trading is really that important um, with what I'm doing. I mean, it's important how you get in and get out, but you know, I think the more alpha is generated in the others. And then, and then the fourth piece, um, I think, which is really interesting is, is like value add. So how can you help the company possibly, right? Um, you can, you can advise management, you can help them get their story out. You can make, um, investor introductions for them. You can, uh, when you get to know them well enough, you can, you know, you can help steer them in the right direction on, um, you know, maybe like what banks they would want to align with, you know, not that I want to be in names that have that capital raise um, need, but who, who companies work with is extremely important because some deals get done really well and some don't. And if they don't get done well, you know, big overhang. And so there's lots of different ways to add value. Um, but the first two are really where I think I create it is in the analysis and then, and then taking that information and being able to understand, you know, w- what it's worth. So, all right, well then let's, let's dig in a little deeper on, on, on those first two things. I mean, yeah. you know, from, from an analytical perspective, you know, we talked about how you like to go through the 10 K's and, and maybe some of the Easter eggs that you look for in there. I mean, how difficult is it? Cause th- th- this is something I probably should ask Maj too, because mm-hmm. it's only an info arb if you actually know some of the news that the company is putting out there on, on their, the press release side, and then being able to take that info. And then when you read the filings, like, wait, that wasn't in the press releases. Cause that's the info art, right. Or anything that they publicly talked about, you know, but it's in the public filings. So, yeah, I mean, I mean the, so- the, well, okay. So, you know, a lot of the names that I'm, I'm in, you know, and, and to, to sort of clarify the space, um, I'd say my sweet spot is around hundred million market cap. Okay. Um, but, but I'm invested in, um, names larger and I'm very frequently talking to and looking at companies that are sub 50, even 25 million. Um, so I think the lower you go, obviously the more, the, the less sort of eyeballs on it. And I think, you know, definitely if you're not on, on a major exchange, um, that can create a little bit more of uh, an arbitrage opportunity, perhaps. Um, but but you know the 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 price isn't isn't efficient in my mind. I mean, one buyer, one seller, you know, can really push things around. Um, so I think it's more just having your thesis on what you think, like, like, why are you involved in what you think the growth might look like and what's going to happen? And then how these little pieces over time, either increase or decrease your conviction, right? Um, And, and sometimes it's not that there's an immediate action that you need to take. It's just, it just adds to, like I said, your conviction level of of what might happen over time. Um, So I don't, I don't know that through these like mo- like these huge you know nuggets that are found. Um, I think generally they're smaller, but but over time they have an impact on 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 how you feel about a company. Look, some companies you know are very open with what they put out there, and just some companies aren't. I mean, you know, my my largest position right now is a company that um, you know upgraded from the over the counter last year to the Nasdaq. They haven't done conference calls. Um, they just did a raise and, and, you know, as a part of that raise, 
this was the first time that they really kind of opened up and, and shared metrics and um, but but not a lot is out there. So in that case, you know, reading a 10K, you're going to find a lot more in there, perhaps, than you would a company that's much more open, does the conference calls, has analyst coverage. And, and so how you take that information and apply it to the stock is different than how I would, you know, if, if, if another company was much more efficient. So... Very good. Because yeah. here's where I want to get to is I want to take how you take that information when you're doing that analysis. Then yeah. I'm going to ask you now about, you know, management and take, getting those nuggets and information from that and then yeah. equaling how you then value that opportunity. So before we get to the, the on the other side of the equal sign, you know, as you said, your, your other advantage that you you like to that that you feel you, the advantage you have is that you've done you've interviewed over 500, 700 management teams and the art of interviewing management. I mean, shit, we, we met at a at a investor right. conference, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, so so for you, you know, how, how do you evaluate management? You know, has that changed over years? And is there any specific questions that you like to ask management teams that that help you get more information? Um, yeah, well, I mean, look, first, I, I, I think you start off, I always start off the call and just say, you know, take the first five, 10 minutes and, 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 and pitch me the company, right? Pitch me your story, pitch me the opportunity. Um, and it's, it's very interesting how those conversations could go vastly differently. I mean, you would think it's so simple, that they could just stay on that course. But more times than not, you know, when I say five to 10 minutes, it's 30 minutes without a breath, you know, and they just go. And, and a lot of times, um, you know, they'll take you down a rabbit hole here, take you down a rabbit hole there. And, it, and it's not really very focused. And not that I'm that judgmental, but I feel like, um, I feel like a strong CEO will be able to articulate his vision and his plan or, or her, her vision, her plan, um, you know, concisely. And, and that, that that's a pretty simple, a pretty simple um, process. Um, if I look back at the ones that sort of stood out as being, you know, atypical, um, I don't know if there's a true correlation to it, but, uh, you know, a lot of times those, those stocks, you know, jumped out as being um, more stories, more of something that's highly promotional than something that, you know, is real business. It's just executing. Um, you know, I love to, um, I love to talk to them. I think alignment of interest is really important. Um, and so obviously talking to them about their, um, their stake in the company, how they came into the company and getting a sense for what, their ambition is and and what their plan is 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 really interesting um and you know i'll, I'll tell you an example just because to feel like these anecdotal stories are sometimes really funny i was uh, just gonna ask you to yeah. a good story on this so, there's, so, there's so many yeah i mean there's been so many over the years but there was one last year that was just uh, i don't know i it was such a head scratcher to me so um so it definitely was a little bit more of a story stock. The stock had been performing great. The guy told a very promotional story, um, disruptive tech product that was in like a pilot phase. And, um, and, and they had 
disclose to the street like the number of test pilots and they they were doing a really good job of 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 um constructing their story and and you got to the end of the call and you know it was just so overwhelmingly bullish that you had to you had to take a step back and have some pause and so i asked i asked him if um if if he owned any like if he owned stock in the company and had he invested his own money not options like i want to see real dollars right and his answer um which to be fully transparent didn't actually come on that call later came via email um his answer was that that he does not invest in any of the businesses that he runs that for him it's too many eggs in one basket that um he once invested in a company he was running and due to some sort of investor fraud with that company he he was forced to sell he lost several million dollars and it gets better and he promised his wife that he would never again invest in a company that he was running and after almost 50 years of marriage he wasn't going to break a promise to his wife now this was a company that at the time was probably like 200 million market cap and I, to me that's just a giant red flag several ways over um so you know little wow. little little things like that are 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 um humorous after the fact and um and and you just never know what you're going to hear when 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 you ask these questions all right i'm going to oh sorry no i was just going to say but but i do think um in terms of the management calls i've you know wh whereas like in the beginning i thought that that was this tenet of the philosophy i remember when i was first pitching people the strategy a big part of it was listen i talk to management teams and nobody talks to and and that's how we that's how we find these opportunities what i've learned is that so many of them lie you know not that they're like outright lying like it's a conscious lie but a lot of times they're just not able to do what they say they're going to do and if you meet them in an LD micro they want to come off like well right i mean they took their time and they spent their money to go there so it's a presentation just like i want to come off well on this right um but but most of the time most of the time they we under promise and over deliver and that's yeah exactly yeah right exactly but, but but they a lot of times they don't so oh. um so you know especially like like i said when they're more of that story stock variety so what i what i've tried to do is talk to management a little less in the beginning um so now i try and do more of my research first um you know and then use the management calls like a supplementary part of the process um i found that when i do the management call first it it one like i'm prejudging a lot based on what they're telling me and they're obviously going to tell it a certain way um before i've already been able to make up some sort of you know have some sort of opinion of my own on on what i think is happening um so so i've kind of pushed that further down in the process um and i think in doing that i also go into that call i really want to go into the call prepared usually i'll have like a list of 20 or 30 questions that i that i want to ask and you know it's just just you know q and a like just fire through it um but when when i've done all that before um i can sort of dive deeper into the weeds more quickly which is where i feel like the real value is 
And, um, and I'm also able to maybe um, expose like red flags easier that I maybe wouldn't have otherwise, you know, known from talking to them earlier on. Absolutely. You know, so actually recently, so I had, I had Ian Castle on my, uh, the, my VAH and crossover episode. And then also he yeah. was just, he was just on the value after our show filling in for Bill. And he was, he was talking, he was talking about management on both, on both shows about how, you know, his mindset has kind of changed a little bit where it's not that he won't talk to management, but his focus has been more on some of the people around uh, uh, the CEO and, and, yeah. and whatnot and seeing what that looks like. I mean, do you, yeah. do you go, do you go that, that far too? Or, or, or that's funny. Cause yeah, I mean, Ian and I are good friends and, um, yeah. and I don't know that we've had that specific conversation, but, um, maybe he's worn off on me a little bit in that sense that, yeah, when you can, um, when you can, absolutely. I mean, that actually, you know, in the early part of this, it was, yeah, talk to the CEO talk to the CFO. Um, I think, I think especially if you're, if you're leaning a little bit more higher in market cap, like as you get to hundred, 200 million and, and, you know, there's like division heads or, or there's other people on a senior team that those people can be extremely valuable conversations. I mean, the question is, how do you get to them? You know, will the company let you talk to them? Um, I mean, I ask, you know, it, it happens. I mean, it's not, I think, you know, there's a relationship you can build. And then once you build that relationship and they understand that, you know, you're going to be a long-term investor and that you can advocate for them and you can make introductions and, you know, it's not like, I I don't, I don't want to get in and out and, and just be fast money. Like I want them to know that, that I hope I can add value as an investor to, to what they're doing. So um, when you get access to that, it certainly helps with the conviction. Um, you know, and there's tools out there nowadays that they cost, they cost a good amount of money, but, um, you can get access to industry experts. Um, and you can, you know, like I just did this, this trial with, a, a T, I don't know if you've heard of Tegas, um, but Tegas is a really interesting, uh, platform that's had great growth and, um, basically you can, you know, if you go on there and XYZ company is of interest to you, they'll go find somebody that used to work at the company, um, or somebody in that space. That's like, you know, senior position at a peer company really cool. or, or a customer. And then you pay, I mean, you, you know, you, you're paying, um, to interview them. And then that actually becomes part of a database that all of their subscribers get to see after an embargo of like a month, right? Um, but but f- using those type of tools to um, to get to experts is is a really you know it, it, that's that's probably one of the most challenging things to to do. But if you can do it, it, it can add significantly to to you know again your conviction. Um, so I'm always looking at how I can leverage my network a little bit. I think LinkedIn's great that way. Um, you know, that's really cool. Yeah. I I, I like that idea. Yeah. And I think, and I also think that, um, you know, somebody like, like the, the peer, the peer network is huge. Um, I think when people ask me like, what's special about me versus, you know, any other person that's been on your podcast, I don't, I don't you know, I think we're all doing the same thing on the same team in a way. Um, but, but I, I love the collaborative nature of, of what I do. Um, 
you know, I'm one person running this strategy. It's small. I like it small because I want to be nimble. Um, but larger firms exist where they have, you know, several analysts and they have larger teams. I think if you are able to leverage the, the collaborative nature of our world today through, you know, people you meet in the space and through other tools that are out there, that you can, you can really create a lot of value around your research process. Um, so, you know, you mentioned Ian, Microcap Club. Uh, I mean, I've been a part of that for 10 years. Um, the, the amount of information and the people, like people ask me about Microcap Club, and I think a lot of people join because they know it's this great community where a lot of really smart people kind of meet and share information. But for me, while I've gotten incredible information from there, I mean, hands down, it's the people I've met and the um, experiences I've had with them, the what I've learned from those people. Um, you know, you go to an LD Micro event and 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 we have a meetup with like 30 or 40 people. And, and you know, you've been a part of that, right? So you, you know oh, yeah. what I'm talking about. And, and, you know, all of these different people have experienced different successes and different failures, and they're all interested in different things. And, um, and, and you're able to take from that. But, but then, you know, you fast forward eight, 10 years, you've cultivated all of these relationships and it becomes a part of your engine in a way. Um, like I'm constantly talking to people I know. I, I, I respect so many people and their ideas and the work that they do that, that the, the flow of information is just, you know, it's just always coming in. You know, a lot of, a lot of ideas are found through that, that engine, if you will, and that dynamic. Um, and I think, and I think I've grown to really appreciate it because um, it's, it's, it's a big part of what makes, what makes it all work. You know, some people don't want that. I, I do, I embrace it. Like, I think it's, I think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a differentiating feature in a way. So. Absolutely. You know, I was going to joke, like you've been on the homepage of Microcap Club, I think yeah. uh, forever, yeah. the same picture. You got to update that yeah. picture. Or I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's, yeah, I'll talk to you about that. I mean, look, look, I'm more proud of being in the top 10, okay? You know, if you crack the top 10, that's – listen, there's a lead company in that top 10. Oh, yeah. There's know? some serious company in that top 10, that's for sure. Yeah. I think you've had many of the top 10 on your uh, on your podcast. So. Listen, I cut off at the top 20, you know, anybody – you know. <laughs> Anybody, yeah. no, I'm just, anybody listening in the club? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I, okay, but but yeah, no. I mean, there's. I mean, as you said so eloquently, like I, I, I'm a huge fan of the club. I love it. I think it's probably one of the most high class, well run groups of investors. Not just for microcap, but just period. You know, yeah. really, just brilliant people. And, uh, and of course, Mike and Ian, you know, they, they run a, they run a great, great ship over there. And, uh, absolutely. We're all big. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to take, so to bring us back, okay. We talked about the analytical side, you know, doing the research on the company and talking to supplementing that with your skills and talking to management. Now we're going to do the other side of the equal sign. So how do we get to that, that, that valuation point, you know, what is it, what valuation do you look for? So then you're like, okay, now it's time to start sizing into some, in, into this position. Yeah, I mean, valuation. You know, valuation today is 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 a really interesting topic, right? Because the market, for damn especially sure. over the past year, I mean, is like a straight line up, 
I feel like the liquidity in this space has just been explosive. Um, it's maybe a little bit less today than it was like late last year in the early part of this year, but the amount of speculative money, retail money, um, you know, people that have been in this space for a long time. We, we know how hard it is to sort of get in and out of things. And all of a sudden it just became really easy to, 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 to navigate in a way that it wasn't. Um, so, and in doing that though, like valuations have really, you know, obviously moved higher for those names that have gone up a lot. Um, I mean, for me, I, I want nowadays, I want predictable businesses. So, you know, before the valuation piece, it's like finding businesses that have, um, you know, high barriers to entry moats. Um, I like a recurring revenue model. Um, you know, we touched on management being aligned. I like high margin businesses. I like businesses that um, are cash flowing or are sort of at the inflection point of doing so. And so if I can, um, if I can predict what I think, you know, the next year might look like um, in terms of growth, then I don't, you know, and I'm not somebody that needs to put a full model together, but, but I feel like the higher growth names have really wild multiples at times. Um, and I think by higher growth, I mean like a company that's growing, say top line more than 30 or 40%. I think there's kind of this sweet spot there where once you get above that, you, you, you enter, you know, a, hot, a different category. Um, so you know, part of it is like, part of it is really looking at like how peers are valued. Part of it is looking at if obviously if they're profitable and what that might look like. But, um, but it's really just, I, I think it's more on that top line piece, honestly. And, and I'm sure other people would disagree with me, but I think it's more on that top line piece. Like if we're smaller down at, in, at the end of, of microcap, it's on that top line piece and how they can really um, establish that this company is taking off, right? I'm usually in that stage where they haven't taken off, but they're about to take off or there's, or there's, you know, a new product launching, um, or there's a product that's hitting an inflection point, but there's other products around it. Um, and, and, um, to some extent in the valuation sort of framework, what I've found is that as much as I want predictable business models, it's also really challenging to try and model out like two or three years, what a company might do. You know, I think, I think you have to watch it quarter to quarter. Um, and, and, you know, if they're doing what they say they're going to do and they're credible and the story's playing out the way you think it will, and the growth is coming or the growth is here, um, you, you know, you, you've got to read the blitz a little bit. Um, what I've learned over time is I've sold too early. Like, I mean, that's definitely like one of my takeaways from the past 10 years is that um, I, I typically have been early. I typically have been in companies that have been hated for a while. Like um, one of the things that I think is interesting, um, we can go down a little bit of a hole here, but but like, um, like I think about pessimism versus optimism in, in, in our world, like sentiment, right? I, I like reading, um, I like reading the economists that have more of a perma bear outlook. You know, I don't know, someone like David Rosenberg, um, they always seem to have these great data points to support whatever their thesis may be at that time. And, um, 
and and they're wrong most of the time too, right? So their views are always counter to the consensus, and at some point they'll be right. You know, they always are because a correction inevitably, inevitably happens. Um, and and this has been like with that sort of narrative, it's been really tough in the past year because um, you know with COVID and all the unknowns, and you know I used to look at like the macro market and think about well, is a correction coming and do I need to like structure the portfolio a certain way if that, if that is, and sometimes they use cash as a position, but, um, but, you know, I, I feel like if anything, that's been a little bit more of a detriment to me because, you know, the market's generally gone higher over the past 10 years. So you want to stay invested. Um, and, uh, I'm sure you've read Morgan Housel. He had a great book last year, the psychology of money. He's got this blog post that's like a couple years old now and talks about how pessimism sounds so smart um, and, and that like bullish arguments uh, can sound more like reckless cheerleading, whereas the pessimistic view, you know, is more intelligent, requires action and comes off as like help in a way. Right. Um, so, you know, to kind of bring it back to microcap, what I've what I've learned is that well, one, it's difficult to predict that that macro environment. So I try not to do that as much anymore. Um, and if you take it to the next step further, it's easy for someone to always tell you that an idea is bad or that they don't like it. You know, I'm guilty of this myself too at times. Um, but but every idea typically has some hair on it. And, um, you know, and, and so a lot of the things that I've been drawn to over time have actually been names that I guess have quite a bit of hair on it. Um, and I, and I, there was more of this, like in my, you know, five, 10 years ago where I would try and figure out like how that would go away. And then in that going away, the stock would be re-rated because, um, people would get more comfortable with it. And what I found is that that's really difficult to predict, um, like how that happens. So when I talked about the middle years where like, I didn't do very well, or wasn't making as much money as I have, like in the, in the past, you know, four or five years. It was that process of, of of companies, you know, going through uh, cleaning themselves up, if you will. Um, and it's especially hard to model anything when when the company is at that sort of um, you know grade or phase. Um, so you know, my 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 best and worst story is that um, digital turbine which is one of the largest micro cap companies in, um, well, it's the, I think it's the number two company in the micro cap index today, was, um, was a dollar stock for quite a while. And I owned it, it was a large position. And, um, and it was just checkered at the time, it was widely checkered with, with problems, but they had really interesting tech. And, um, and it's funny because you, you, you typically look back and you learn from these things, like you reflect back and, uh, you know, that company's trades at $75 a share today. And, uh, I mean, that's the type of, you know, sort of career defining career changing, you know, trade that you could put on. Um, and, and the reason I, the reason I say that I'll try and tie this all together is that you asked about valuation, like with that company, I would have never thought I would have ever traded at a valuation like that, which it trades today. And I think it's just totally absurd. But, you know, the market loves this company now. Microcap companies that show growth and get embraced and sort of discovered and institutionalized, 
I mean, the valuations can get pretty wild. It's hard to wrap your hands around that, you know, the, the, the psychology around that and, and the behavior um, that happens when price starts to work. There's this sort of thing around sentiment where I feel like um, price dictates sentiment in a way. So when it's hated, price is awful and nobody cares. But like if it doubles, then all of a sudden everybody cares, you know, and, and they didn't like it at $5, but gosh, they love it at 10. Why? You know, I don't know. I mean, that's just the way it, it works in a way. But um, so, so I generally think more about my downside um, and how I'm going to lose than, you know, really what that valuation is going to look like, like if things work, because I find when they're working, it's, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to estimate it lower than what it might be. Like if it really works, it's going to take off. Very good. Yeah. There, oh man. We could do like three hours on like a couple different. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll come back. Up. I'll come back in like five years. Yeah. yeah, yeah no, five years. <laughs> Episode 500. Yeah. But, exactly. uh, <laughs> but um, one, one thing to follow up there. Well, first are you still a shareholder of a digital turbine? Uh, no, sadly I'm not. So I don't have to make any disclosure there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. yeah. That is, this is not investment advice. Let me be clear, not investment advice in any way. Yeah. Well, for, so for you, I mean, how do you think about risk then? You know, you, you've made it pretty clear how like, look, it's easy for you to build the bullish case. I'd say for anybody here, it's probably pretty easy to build the bullish case. And yeah. even, even for a dog, it's easy to build the bullish case. You know, but it's really having that discipline to say, all right, here is my, here's the hair and here's the risk. If I, if I want to deal with the hair that I'm willing to take. So, so how do you think about risk and, and how do you manage that um, with, with maybe companies that you would, you want to take positions in? Yeah. I mean, balance sheet, number one, like, um, I, you know, uh, when I, when I went through a period of not making money, it was, it was because of balance sheet, balance sheet caused companies that I was in that I liked to need money and then go down this sort of slippery slope of trying to raise money, not being able to do it quickly, you know, because liquidity isn't what it is right now where anybody can raise money in like a week. Um, and, and, you know, you just have overhang, right? So what I learned in that was that if I can, if I can reduce, like take that out of my portfolio, then all of a sudden, you know, my batting average goes up considerably. You know, I think the reason I've been successful, uh, like I have over the last four years is that my bad, I mean, you know, there really haven't been many losers at all. Right. So I've had names not work, but they're just flat or they're up small. Um, and then, and then the names that really have worked have just contributed to the bottom line. Um, so, so balance sheet by far is, is the thing that I look at, um, and then, you know, and then I sort of get back to what we've talked about before around business model. You know, is it recurring? Is it higher margin? Is it lumpy? Right. Like a lot of these, I, I, I remember years ago getting involved in like companies that had more lumpy business models. And it was so, it, you felt like there were landmines everywhere. Like you never knew what the quarter was going to be. It was going to be great or it was going to be heartbreaking, you know? Um, and, it just doesn't like that type of company to me now, it just doesn't appeal like it did then. I, I want to be able to have some, some ability to predict what's coming. Um, and, 
I find that in doing so, I'm much more comfortable with the risk, right? Um, because I'm probably not going to get that surprised to the, to the downside. Um, and if I do, you know, hopefully there's a good reason for it and it's temporary. Um, so looking at balance sheet, I feel like insulates a lot of that. And then, you know, again, just being able to wrap your hands around the business and what type of business it is. Um, I also don't do anything in biotech, so I don't carry like binary risk around FDA, you know, panels. Um, I don't do really anything in the energy space, um, because there's added variables of risk there that I can't wrap my hands around. So, um, my, the businesses are typically pretty straightforward. Very good. Yeah. And then my, my, my one last question that I had about the, is, is on the fun. Well, it's not my last question, but yeah, just yeah on the strategy side, is, yeah, I, got, I, got, I, I promise I only have, I only have a couple more. But no, but yeah. um on yeah. on the on the fun structure, you know the yeah. SMA style. You know, I, I in doing this pod for for many years now and talking with 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 uh, other individuals like yourself that have funds doing the SMA style. You know. You you made mention during this that you prefer to stay small in order to stay nimble. You know, right. I, I mean, what what is that sweet spot then? And, and then how are you able to execute that the small micro cap strategy in in this style? You know, I, I'm sure a lot yeah, of people listening is one one and up. Yeah, no, that's a good question. There's been a um, there's been a narrative which I'm sure you've probably seen on Twitter recently about like the emerging manager and. I don't know where 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 it started, but I feel like there the sentiment around the merging manager is more negative than it is positive in a way that um, is really hard to attract capital. It's really hard to build build a a um, a business around doing around doing this, managing money in the microcap space. Um, and I completely disagree. I mean, it's like anything else. like you're you're building a business, you're constructing it, and you can do it in different ways. So for me, when, when I started this, um, we put a lot of thought into whether we want, I mean, I, I was going the SMA route because, um, you know, it was a little bit of like a post Bernie Madoff world at the time, right then when we were piecing it together. And I just thought like everybody should get transparency and should be able to see everything we're doing. And, and I don't want to ever meet with a client and say, you know, I'll talk to you at the end of the quarter and show you what your what your portfolio looks like, you know, so you can log into your account, you can see your account every day. And it's just easy that way. You know, the 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 other thing, um, you know, that I think is really interesting. Um, well, well, I use interactive brokers. So I think interactive brokers is a good platform. I don't think it's perfect. Um, their technology is good. I would recommend it to people that are starting out because it's essentially free. Um, you know, you pay trading costs, but there's nothing above the trading costs. Um, and you can, you know, you can scale very easily. Like I trade, I trade sort of make one trade and the technology allocates it across all the accounts, right? So it's, it's very simple and it's efficient. Um, and you don't need at, you don't have added costs around like legal and, 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 um, accounting and other things, you know, they custody the money, they provide the back office. Um, so I think if you construct it lean, you can stay small, the economics can work for you. Um, and look, I mean, if you go land, you know, a 10, $20 million client at some point, I mean, maybe you revisit it then. The only drawback that I've really come across with the SMA structure over the past, you know, eight to 10 years is that 
there's a lot of opportunity in participating in um, in capital raises. Now I go back and I don't want to necessarily be in that company, but um, if it was easier to participate, I think there's a lot of opportunity there and, and doing so in an LP structure would, would, would make that much easier as well. So, um, you know, for me, it's like, do I, would I do SMA again? Yeah, I think I would absolutely. But if I didn't, I'd probably do it and try and be more, more proactive, um, on the, on the deal side. Um, Very good. So, does that answer the question? Yeah, that answered yeah. it. That answered yeah. it. Well. Yeah. All right. So my favorite question to ask, and you've, you've given a, a couple anecdotes today. So I usually always ask, you know, an investor experience that, that has impacted your career the most, but I'm going to pull your leg for one more management story. Okay. Because listen, oh. we've been, like you said, we've been to all okay. these conferences yeah. together. Yeah. I know you do a thousand one-on-ones at every um, single one. So let, let you got one or two in you. I know you do. Yeah. So they can say, of course. Yeah. Uh, Right. Well, yeah. So last year there was a company that I had been involved with for years that, um, that, uh, was merging with another, that announced the merger with another company and, um, and COVID hit and the merger made no sense. Like the, the company that I had been involved with, um, was in a industry that took off as a result of, of COVID hitting, um, and this, this merger was kind of like a merger of two companies that weren't really executing well, but all of a sudden the one company was like, you know, the trajectory had, had dramatically changed. So it made no sense for this, these two companies to, to merge. And, um, and, and so, you know, I talked to management and you couldn't really glean anything from anything at the time, but I just thought there's no, there's, there's, there's no way. And I started talking to other investors that were involved and, you know, um, I, I guess I might've posted something on microcap club that I had heard was forwarded around to the management teams. <laughs> and, um, and so somebody introduced me to the, to the chairman of the company they were merging with. And I did a call with the chairman and um, when we started the call, he told me that I was the guy that was trying to break the deal. Like I was the guy that didn't want this to happen and was trying to make waves. And I laughed and I thought, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, you know, if only I had that much muscle, I'm not an activist, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's so like, it's, it's funny. I mean, I guess that's the downside of kind of throwing things out there into the, into the sphere at times that you never know who's reading it or, or how it could get sort of passed around. But um, you know, I'm, I'm not that type of investor. And, uh, it, it was quite humorous that like the chairman of this company that I had never invested in, right. Like didn't have any uh, tie to, um, had somehow heard, you know, who I was and thought that I was trying to make waves. So, um, well, did the deal, did the merger happen? No. And then the merger didn't happen. So you got was, muscle. You got some muscle. It had nothing to do, it had nothing to do with me, but yeah, the merger didn't happen. And, uh, I mean, it, yeah, there's probably another podcast on this story, but like, <laughs> but like the company just dramatically was in a different space. So, so the merger didn't happen. They called it off and um, yeah, I think they paid a break fee and the stock went like up five X in like four, in like four months, you know? 
So, I mean, that's, you know, that's a unique special situation. I'm not looking for that at all, but, you know, every now and then like things like that happen and, and you, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, this will be the last thing on it, but um, speaking of, of things buried in filings, this was one of the best, this was one of the best ones I can remember where the, and, and I thought it was a tell is that the company reported their earnings um, for first quarter last year, right after um, after COVID had struck, and the earnings release was like pretty straightforward, right? But then they then they put an 8K out like a week later, and the 8K revealed that their their like pipeline had like exploded, and they didn't put it anywhere else, and they buried it in an 8K after earnings, right? And and honestly, I remember reading that and thinking. I wonder how many people are reading this this morning because the company like had dramatically changed overnight and nobody knew it and the stock wasn't moving, you know, so it was a really unique opportunity to, 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 you know, try and take advantage of that. And I guess a pretty good example of, you know, a lot of what we talked about today. So that's a, that's a really good one. All right. Yeah. So to, to close this out here, Neil, uh, what advice would you have for any investors listening right there that are new to microcaps and, you know, want to learn more and what, what, what's some advice that you got? Yeah, one. I mean, look, we talked about the emerging manager thing. I'd say, I'd say, definitely get involved. I mean, don't be, don't shy away to it if you're passionate about this and 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 you think you know how to do it. I mean, just construct it in a way where your overhead is is low, and you can make the economics work for you, even if you don't have, you know, a lot of money. I mean, you start small, you can grind it out, and and you know, it takes some time, but um, but you can do it if it's structured the right way. Um, you know, on the research side, read the filings. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing more basic than that. And I would say, you know, l- certainly look at, at the collaborative tools that are out there, look at ways that you can connect with people, um, whether it's, you know, a microcap club or whether it's, you know, Twitter, um, I love when people reach out to me, I reach out to people all the time. I mean, if somebody tweets about a name I'm involved with, I don't know who they are, but why not, you know, just just broaden the network, right? So don't be shy to send an email or a message. You might be surprised at who, you know, writes back. And, you know, to that point, the same holds on the research side. I mean, you can get to anybody nowadays. So, you know, send the message, pick up the phone, send an email. Um, you know, be, people are more friendly than, than I think, you know, they get credit for in general. So... That's for sure. Especially in this community, everyone, everyone's just so yeah. nice and, and want, they, they like you are, are, they see it as a team sport and it really yeah. is. You it know is. I mean? Yeah. It's not me versus you. I mean, honestly, if, 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 if everybody wins the whole, the whole tide's rising. Right. So that's right. Um, that's right. So yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Neil, with that, it's time to let you go. Where can our audience go and find more information about you follow you on social media and as well as blueprint. Yeah, sure. So um, my email is neil, N-E-I-L, at blueprintcm.com. Um, feel free to message me if you'd like. I can be found on Twitter under my full name, Neil Cataldi, um, N-E-I-L-C-A-T-A-L-D-I. And uh, the website for Blueprint is uh, blueprintcm.com. So look forward to chatting with you. Awesome. Neil, you lived up to the hype, man. You Thank know what you. I know? Listen, I know this was five, six years in the making, but we, we made we made it happen. So yeah. um, let me know. I, let me know if you want to do it again sometime. I'd love to. Oh, absolutely, man. This was great. Thank you so much. And uh, again, good luck. Stay safe.
Yeah. I look, I look for the next chat we have. Thanks. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman Partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well-equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com.